You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Masood Tavazoy. I should have asked you how to pronounce your last name. I'm sorry. CEO and co-founder of Urgenix, R-G-E-N-I-X.com. So, uh, Masood, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Rich. How do you pronounce your last name? I I apologize for not asking you before. Oh, no, don't worry. It's a difficult one. It's uh, Tavazoy. Tavazoy. All right. All right. Very good. Tell me about uh, Argenix or Regenix. What's the premise of the company? Yeah, sure, Rich. So uh, Argenix is a clinical stage cancer therapeutics company. And the focus of the company is to develop what's known as first-in-class cancer therapies or or really new cancer therapies uh, to treat patients that uh, otherwise might not have available treatment options for their cancer. And uh, we were founded Mm -hmm. in 2010 and uh, really based on a scientific premise that we could apply some new technology to search and identify and discover uh, new cancer targets that we could then translate into potential therapeutics for patients. And we've been doing that ever since and now have uh, several uh, uh, drug programs which are uh, in clinical development, which means they're uh, being tested in clinical trials. So, I mean, cancer, there's, I mean, as far as I know, there's... uh... 100, 200 kinds at least. So which kinds of cancer are you targeting? And you know, then maybe we'll get into some of the mechanisms. Absolutely. So uh, we have several different programs targeting different types of cancer, but really scientifically, our approach uh, largely focuses on identifying cancer targets that affect what's known as the tumor microenvironment, which is essentially just mm-hmm. a fancy way to say that the therapies we're developing don't necessarily act on the cancer cells themselves, but help uh, act on the patient's body to help facilitate the patient's uh, own uh, attack against cancer. And because of that, uh, the therapies actually have potential to treat uh, multiple different cancers and not just single types of cancer. Uh, and that's really uh, 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 the, the same technology across all of our therapeutic uh, programs. We do focus to some extent on, on certain cancers where uh, we have evidence to suggest the therapies might work better. Uh, and we do so by selecting patients also using biomarkers. So just uh, a little bit more detail for our first program, RGX-104, we're focusing mostly on lung cancer, on two different types of lung cancer there. For our second program, RGX-202, the focus of that program is in uh, what's known as gastrointestinal cancer, so cancers of the gastrointestinal tract, including uh, colorectal cancer and gastric cancer. And for our third program, where it's a bit more broad, it's both solid and what's known as liquid tumors, 
including uh, leukemias. So what what uh, does cancer do to its microenvironment? What are some of the things that you know science has observed cancer doing? Yeah, so it's a, this is a really good question, Rich. And right now we're really in a, in a uh, I think a, in a revolution of, uh, in terms of how we think about uh, cancer, and some of that has to do with technology, but some of that revolution is in our perspective of how we think about cancer. And cancer, as it evolves and grows from kind of a small tumor to spread throughout the body and metastasize and and get to late stage, actually evolves multiple mechanisms by which the tumor cells can evade the body's attack on them. Now, the body is equipped to actually mount attacks on cancer, and the body's doing this all the time. That includes uh, the body's immune system targeting the cancer like it would an infection. It's the body's ability to provide nutrients and energy, which the tumor cells can actually uh, uh, take up and steal from the body. It can include simple things like the tumor um, fooling the body into making blood vessels to feed the tumor, which actually don't come from the tumor cells themselves, but come from the body. So there's multiple different aspects of the body that tumors uh, can actually evolve to manipulate in order to fool the body into uh, uh, blocking its attack on cancer. And so our company has a, uh, a scientific approach that was developed at the Rockefeller University, which is uh, in New York City, actually, where the company is based, that allows us to model this interaction between the tumor and the microenvironment in animals, uh, in mice, where tumor studies are usually started, to, to uh, not only uh, figure out how the tumor is communicating with the, with the body, but then to find specific nodes that we can attack with therapeutics that then uh, boost the body's ability to, to fight the cancer. And most specifically for our lead program, uh, where we have an, what's known as immunotherapy, which boosts the body's ability to fight tumors using the immune system. And, uh, and that's a novel approach that other uh, companies are taking, but we found a target on a certain immune cell that, uh, that uh, can boost the body's ability to fight tumors in a, in a novel way. So cancer co-ops the cells that are literally adjacent to it or around it and has them, has them do its bidding or maybe steals nutrients from them, uh, does all kinds of things to create a, a local hospitable zone for itself as it grows, right? That's exactly right. And, and that's just really begun to be appreciated over the last decade or so. Prior to that, there was a huge focus on making targeted therapies just against the tumor cells themselves, which were taken into a dish in the lab. And we had some success with that, particularly upon the sequencing of, of the human genome, where we could sequence patients' tumors and look at the DNA and see what is exactly different in the patient's tumor versus the body. But we've become to realize that that in itself does not always provide patients with clinical benefit because tumors can evolve around that. And the interaction between the the tumor and the body is really important. And now we have a generation of therapeutics as, uh, in, in, uh, that's, uh, as a community called immune checkpoint inhibitors. These are approved therapies. There's several of them approved. And they actually can uh, provide, in some cases, very long clinical benefit, in some cases, curing late-stage patients by uh, training the immune system to attack tumors in a durable way. And so those treatments are not against the cancer like the old generation therapies. They're really treatments to the body that allow the body to mount good effective anti-tumor response. And so, again, those, those were discovered by scientists uh, looking at how 
tumors interact with the microenvironment. And we're doing something similar at Argenix, but we have a discovery platform that allows us to uh, uh, identify these across multiple different tumor types. Yeah, I guess the problem is the tumor can affect the microenvironment, you know, in order to sustain itself and grow, but it doesn't send out essentially a systemic response, you know, i.e. it hides from the immune system and doesn't really cause systemic responses. But then when you go to treat it, let's say with chemo or radiation or whatever, that's more of a, you know, you're attacking all the cells in and out of the microenvironment and around it. It has a lot of collateral damage, but yet the tumor is acting in a different way where it doesn't do that except to serve itself. So I can see why immune therapy is one of the ways you could target the tumor um, locally and without affecting the body possibly negatively uh, systemically. That's exactly right, Rich. And we and we we came to realize that as a community of, of scientists, oncologists, by really studying what we call in vivo interactions between the tumor and, and the host, and not neglecting the fact that uh, that interaction is actually very important. And that's how tumors grow. You know, initially when we when we started looking at cancer again two or three decades ago, we didn't have some of the tools and techniques to do that. So we just take tumors in a dish see what made them grow and then find basically toxins against them, which, as you said, can affect the body in detrimental ways. But now as we have good, uh, very strong scientific and biological understanding and have some technology that we can apply, we can then really tease out and, uh, the interaction. And we've learned that tumors evolve and they actually, uh, uh, the body has a lot of mechanisms to fight tumors, but these tumors can kind of turn those off one after the other in, what, in what's kind of commonly phrased in immunotherapy as checkpoints. They turn these checkpoints off and then the body thinks, oh, we should mount an immune response to this tumor uh, because the body doesn't recognize it as a tumor. Those mechanisms that, that the tumor is taking advantage of are mechanisms that the body uses to protect itself sometimes for an infection, for example, where you don't want the body fighting a cold for 10 years. You fight the cold for a week and you recover and then you turn the immune system off. Tumors evolve to actually learn how that happens. It's really interesting. They're very clever because they can evolve and, and uh, through a population of, of cells to kind of turn on and off cellular pathways and they arrive at this. And so we just model that in, in animals and look at the kind of whole multitude of proteins that can change and find those changes that really are affecting how the body interacts with the tumors. And then uh, our mission at Argenix is to make therapeutics against those. And I'll just say one more thing, Rich, that an advantage of that is not yeah. only that you can really affect those key nodes and hopefully get durable benefit, but there's the potential to to really go broadly across tumor types because in many instances um, across different tumor subsets, uh, uh, the same mechanisms are being applied, whether it's a cancer maybe in the lung or a cancer in the skin. So th this this knowledge base that we're accumulating as a field and and and, and our genics in particular for our, our therapeutic programs uh, could have potential uh, therapeutic benefit uh, across multiple tumor types. Yeah, it's weird. You know, you you have a primary tumor that lives. Let's say it starts in the liver. So yeah. that's a unique environment, and it creates its own microenvironment to thrive. Then it grows and metastasizes, let's say, the pancreas. Completely different environment, yet it still survives there and it still manages to take hold and grow and form a niche and then maybe metastasizes to a different tissue. How does it do that? How can it, 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 goes, it seems to go in and sense and then alter itself to be able to thrive in multiple different environments that could be radically different from where it started. Is there any learnings there that, that we found? 
this is you're absolutely hit on the right point and at, at the basis for our technology is exactly that we start with human cancer cells from patients with known cancers and we model metastasis in animals and what's interesting is the cancer cells in in mice actually uh, metastasize and behave and travel to the same organs that that same cancer would in a patient. And then we, we look at those cancer cells after they've evolved, grown, and become very aggressive, and we can compare them to the original tumor, which you can kind of think of as a primary tumor, and then we say, what's different between the cancer cells that made it and those that didn't? An anal a good analogy is like, if you want to swim across the English Channel, and you're looking at your, your country's athletes, all the top swimmers, you could choose two or three of them, or you could say, I'm going to take a million people and have them all try and swim and see who the best swimmer is. You're going to arrive at a pretty a couple incredible swimmers that can make it across, and then you go look at those people who made it across, and you see that they have a swimmer phenotype. Cancer cells do the same thing. They start small, but they evolve as a population they undergo changes, and some cells have better adapt to live in the liver. Some are better adapt to live in, uh, uh, you know, in the lungs. And while the population evolves, they affect, effectively shut down the body's ability to control their spread. And they do this using all the different various things we spoke about: immune system, energy, blood vessels, other cells. And that's how they almost evolve individually as cancer cells but then grow as a population. And depending on which organ they go to and what type of cancer, they utilize slightly different techniques, and we can learn from that by modeling that. And that's exactly what, uh, at what we do as our, at our genics, and that's where the technology is. We really model that to mimic what, we're gonna, uh, what happens in, in, in cancer patients who have advanced metastatic cancer, and then we, we can learn from that and find novel targets. Have you, have you tried, um, let's say, liver cancer in a mouse model? and taking cancer cells and put them into the mouse's liver. And th does that cancer always tend to go to the same metastasis sites or is it, is there any signal or is it just random where it goes? And then what if you took that same cancer and you put it into the pancreas, would it leave the pancreas and go to the liver and then metastasize from there? Or would it, would it have a different path? Have you tried it, things like that? It's pretty interesting, Rich. If you take, um, if you take uh, from a patient, from their uh, from their blood metastatic cells, for example, from a breast cancer patient who has metastasis to their lung, meaning their their cancer spread to the lung. If you inject uh, those those cells into the venous bloodstream of, a, of of mice, they tend to go and metastasize to the lung. Now they might metastasize to other areas. It's not an exact replicate of the biology, but there's a surprisingly consistent migration of certain cells, and that's because certain uh, tumors that grow certain places at some stage, they're adept to migrate to certain areas of the body. And in many cases, a cancer that maybe has spread to the lung might have also spread to other areas of the body, but there might be a survival advantage in the lung where that's where you uh, end up seeing the tumors, whereas in other places, maybe they have a small amount of cancer there. And again, we we have to learn from, from, from these bi biological processes because it suggests that something of that cancer has been able to take advantage of the microenvironment uh, in the lung, for example, and then we want to learn what that is. Why is it that they don't grow so well early on in the lung, but eventually they do? What's the difference between the cancer that can grow there and the cancer that doesn't? Because that can reveal through kind of subtractive analysis the, the key things that the cancer needs to grow somewhere. And that's why we care about. We want to treat patients 
we want to have a patient, patient-centric model of how we think about cancer. And each patient is different, and each cancer is slightly different, and how the cancer relates to the body is different. And so we want to learn from that and really think about the way you, you, you pose the question is a good one, because using that subtractive, subtractive analysis, really, and comparative analysis is the best way to describe it, you can then see, all right, well, these, these cells that grow here, they're using this uh, protein to do so. This protein, as an example, gets secreted, and that shuts off the immune system. Maybe that's not so important in certain parts of the body where the immune response is not very strong to begin with. And so that's not important mm. there. And so we can use this subtractive analysis to really find, uh, you know, the key nodes that these cells use. And I'll just say one other thing, because it, I think it's important as we think about therapies. Often you have to hit multiple different nodes at the same time to really good, get good benefit for patients. And we're seeing that in clinical trials where some of the best uh, uh, therapeutic approaches now in this kind of next generation of immunotherapies are by combining certain immunotherapies with other therapies, even including chemotherapy, where, which can help boost the activity of a, the immune system in ways that we're just learning after using chemotherapy for 30 years. So it, it gets very complicated, but we can simplify it by using technologies that, that really get to the, the, the key differences of what makes metastatic cancer so aggressive versus maybe a cancer cell type that's not able to grow there. Yeah, I was thinking about your, well, the breast cancer example, that it, it I guess it, it tends more often than not to spread to the lung. Um, I guess that suggests two things to me. One is that maybe when the breast cancer uh, is ready to metastasize, just the way it changes, mutates, uh, predisposes it to be able to function in the lung over other organs. That's one idea. The other idea is what if the cancer is, scouting for other locations and it finds the lung and then it communicates back with the primary tumor, the cells that are in the lung and says, all right, you know, here's what to do. And you've reached a location. Now we'll send more reinforcements and have you build up there. Just two ideas. I mean, pure speculation, but yeah, yeah, there's multiple different ways that this happens. In some cases, the anatomy actually can drive to some extent where cancers go. So for example, colorectal cancer and pancreatic cancer tend to spread to the liver, and that has to some extent to do with the with the way that the anatomy is of the liver, which drains a lot of the blood that comes from the gut, and that's how we digest food and get nutrients. And in other cases, for example, the, uh, for lung metastasis, the lung is the area where blood goes through to provide oxygen, provides an easy conduit with a very wide surface area. But it, what you said is interesting because Cells that metastasize and spread often send signals to the entire body, and we know this because those cells can actually globally suppress the immune system. Metastatic cancer in one part of the body can send signals to the bone marrow where immune cells are made to actually generate immunosuppressive cells that usually are only hmm. present when the body wants to shut off the immune system, but the body's immune system is tricked by the cancer to do that. So it's very interesting because you now have a system where the cancer is interacting with the body in a detrimental way. And once we figure out what that signal is, and in our genics for our lead program, we've identified what we think is one of those signals and have a therapeutic compound that we're testing on that, testing on that, uh, that premise, you can then shut that signal off and block the ability of those um, uh, uh, aggressive tumor cells to manipulate the body's immune system so that you don't get more spread. 
So this is part of the appreciation of the complexity of cancer. And it's a good thing because we then start to think about cancer as a systemic disease and not just a tumor in isolation because the body is very important and its interaction with tumors are very important. A patient's health status is very important. A patient's immunologic status is very important. All these things we're now coming to appreciate and we're applying technologies to take advantage of that because the goal is to really cure patients of their cancer, right? And we're starting to see that in some solid tumors with uh, immunotherapies and and you know and but the problem is we still despite these advances uh, the majority of patients who have advanced you know stage 4 cancer for most indications will succumb to their disease so we have a long way to go but this revolution i think in how we are approaching cancer is going to is going to really help um uh, identify these these kind of complex mechanisms and and distill them to the most important ones that we can then uh, attack with novel therapies. And you also said, you alluded to the fact that in order to treat cancer, you need to essentially attack it on multiple fronts because it's, it, it seems to be able to hyper evolve with incredible speed. And, um, you know, you know, I've heard of people getting chemotherapy of one type, uh, the cancer grows smaller, but then it comes back stronger and more aggressive than before. Then they hit it with radiation, same thing. Then they hit it with another type of chemo and it, it, it develops resistance against multiple attacks that are serial, but I guess in parallel is how you could really uh, hopefully get rid of a cancer. That's right. And, 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 you know, some of these older generation chemotherapies actually do provide good benefit for patients. And what we're learning now is that um, in some cases, instead of, uh, you know, providing patients uh, sequential therapies, for example, with chemotherapy, sometimes combining these at once with immunotherapies in one combination regimen actually is better than providing each one individually. And again, we're learning now that even things like chemotherapy that we thought maybe just affects cancer cells might actually provide the body's uh, a better ability to mount an immune response against the tumor. So there's all this new learnings that, we're, that we have as a community uh, working on, on cancer medicines that's, that's kind of re-looking at the past therapeutics. And, and, and then the challenge becomes, which is that we have uh, these novel uh, um, uh, therapeutic uh, programs that that are not approved, obviously, that we're testing in clinical trials. We then need to see, do these therapies uh, uh, that are approved work well with the ones that we're currently uh, investigating? So then you have the added complexity of doing combination studies. And this is where really understanding the biology of what uh, cancer does, and understanding the biology of the novel targets that you're making a therapeutic uh, uh, agent against really are important because then you can think about ways to rationally combine different cancer modalities, whether it's chemotherapy with immunotherapy or radiotherapy with immunotherapy or two different types of immunotherapy hitting two different types of immune cells. These are all uh, 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 key elements of cancer drug development nowadays, and it's it's uh, one of the challenges that uh, everybody's facing, really, of how to appropriately combine agents. And so, uh, at the same time, it could provide a a big benefit as we as we see some potential synergies uh, in combination therapies. And and again, we're we're seeing that in some instances, for example, in in lung cancer, non-small cell lung cancer as a first line therapy, the uh, the administration of of um, of these checkpoint inhibitors with chemotherapies providing pretty good patient benefit. And so um, there's obviously a lot of room to improve, and a lot of patients still don't have effective therapies, but 
but the biology mm. is, is important to understand the biology. What about um, cancer cells themselves? I've heard there's cancer stem cells and there's uh, regular cancer cells. I mean, the the cells that let's say are responsible for a metastasis are they of a, a third flavor or type? You know, have uh, have we looked at that kind of thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. A lot of this has to come down to a little bit, you know, nomenclature. What what maybe some scientists might say are the cancer stem cells might be the similar types of cells that are metastasis initiating, or some of those cells that are actually resistant to therapies might also be those. So, you know, we we the the way we look at the biology, we try and simplify it. We don't necessarily like to put labels on this on, on the cells. We like to look functionally at what happens because we really just care functionally. Can we really block cancer progression? Can we block the, the metastasis of a cell uh, of cancer cells in totality? So we actually look at entire populations of cancer cells and do analysis of their uh, of the signal that they send out to the body. And we we, we don't like to take necessarily a, a, a an approach where we have to know ahead of time which cell is important. We let the biology tell us by modeling cancer spread. Uh, and metastasis in animals, and then really just comparing the, the tumors in totality, and and then that also means we have to look at the the immune response in totality as well, and look at other things like energy uh, metabolites in the body and things like that. So uh, we try and again uh, at our genetics and our kind of our scientific team to to try and get away a little bit from the phenomenology or the or the names and look kind of functionally, which is obviously a challenge. But um, but some of those same cell types you mentioned are, are overlapping, and and uh, that all comes about by cellular evolution of these cells, which is the other the other interesting phenomenon, which is a tumor at one point might look very different a week from now, and a metastasis might actually have very different cells than a in one place than a metastasis metastatic tumor in another place, and might have different interactions with the body. And these are all things that we need to really understand at a deeper level as we uh, as we work to make more effective therapeutics. Yeah, have, have there been uh, 3D images of a tumor to look at the structure of it, the types of, you know, well, you talk about it in terms of function, but the function of the cells within a tumor, do they appear to come in layers of function, or is the, is the tumor differentiated in its function, for instance? Yeah, it's uh, there's more and more technology being put into looking at even single cells, isolating them from tumors, characterizing the, the expression of of the of the genome in one cancer cell versus another, and then doing the same thing for all the immune cells that go into a tumor, and realizing there's different types of T cells in a tumor. There's different types of myeloid cells in the tumor. Different types of B. There's even B cells in tumor. So there is a, a push to really fundamentally characterize the what's the heterogeneity of cancer, and then the heterogeneity of the. Uh, and I, I'm using the immune system as an example because it's the best example we have of a tumor microenvironment target, but looking at the heterogeneity there and really understanding that it's a dynamic process. It changes over time. Um, at one point, you might have the immune system mounting a powerful attack. At another point, you might have uh, the immune system be suppressed by the tumor, and that in some cases can be reversible with immunotherapy. So we're, we're, we're having to build uh, not only models, but we have to use technology and, and really have access to to uh, samples from uh, cancer patients, which are being, uh, you know, uh, volunteering in clinical trials for therapeutics, and these are all building our data set and building our experience of how cancer works. It's really very important as we as we move these um, uh, potential 
uh, therapeutic programs forward that we have a good understanding of of the heterogeneity, uh, and and that's something that the field as a whole is working very hard to characterize. It's so complicated. I mean, how do you direct the company's work? How does the company know what to do? Because it's just amazing. I mean, cancer is like its own organism. It's like a parasite. And has its own goals. It wants to preserve itself. It's able to spread and proliferate and adapt. And it's just unbelievable. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, it, you know, it seems pretty daunting. Obviously, you know, the community as a whole builds on the science. And, and uh, but, you know, fundamentally, when, when we started this process, we, we, again, wanted to just distill it and, and kind of simplify the way we think about it. And so we just started with this premise that we're going to start with some cancer cells that um, that we isolate. We're going to characterize what proteins they express, and proteins are the are the outcome of the DNA. That the proteins are what makes a cell, and that's what provides signals to other cells. And then we're going to model how cancer uh, uh, metastasizes in humans, in animals, in lab in the lab. And then we're going to generate highly aggressive cancer cells from the population of cancer cells we started off with, which are from the same patient, are genetically very similar, but behave very different. And then we just literally do the comparison and say, what's different about these highly aggressive cancer cells that are metastasized to the lung or the, or the, or the liver? And, and how are they different from that first set of cells that we started with that could spread but didn't do so aggressively? You know, we really do a selection process, and then we just look at the the really the profile of those cells molecularly, and a lot of different things come up, and then we focus on ones that uh, that really seem to be happening in more than one patient's cancer cells. So then we can broadly do this broadly and say, all right, well, this changes is this change specific change is coming up very consistently every time we look at this um, metastatic process. This must be important. What is this doing? And then we can use genetics and molecular biology, the laboratory, to tweak those genes and the proteins they make. And then we say, oh, aha, this actually drives cancer progression. So we really start off what we like to say is an unbiased approach. We pretend like we don't know any of the proteins that are important. We just know the fundamental process of cancer spreading is important because that's unfortunately what causes most cancer mortality. So that's what we want to study. And then we model it. And then we let the biology come back to us and say, well, this, this target is really important. It seems to be coming up every time you have a cancer spread uh, to the lung. And then we say, all right, well, maybe that's a good target. And then we, then we work to make therapeutics. And, and that's really what the company does. We, we do drug development and, and move programs from early science all the way to uh, you know, clinical trials with, with potential agents. So obviously, it's a complicated process. But Biologically, we, we try and simplify it that way, and that's uh, uh, possibly why we've been uh, successful at at getting novel, uh, 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 you know, compounds into clinical development um, uh, based on the science. Hmm. Have Have you tried uh, to see the very inception of cancer? You know, have you, um, let's say, injected a mouse with one cancer cell or just a few, and try to tag them and track their progress, or you know, have you ever observed? the very start of a metastasis? And would that give yeah, you any so, insight? Yeah, so what happens is if you take a population of cancer cells as a, as a, the first time and you, you inject them into mice and look for cancer spread, you know, you need several million cells usually just to even start. And, a, and after many months, if you label, you can label them 
with a protein that can that a detector can detect uh, that fluoresces outside of the mouse's body. It's pretty interesting. You can do uh, fluorescent labeling of cells. You can monitor after many months, you get small tumors in the lung. Now, if you then isolate those tumors that have spread to the lung and re-inject them in another round of, of animals to model it, and you do that many times, at the end of it, you can inject maybe just a few thousand cells and you can get very, very aggressive tumors to grow. You know, you started having to inject very many million. And that's because you're, we're starting to isolate the highly aggressive population of cancer cells that, that, that provides metastasis from the first population that was more heterogeneous. And so we can monitor even very small um, uh, metastases that start to grow and look and see what happens there. And it, it's pretty interesting because the, the cancer actually makes a, uh, starts forming a niche the second it arrives in an organ. It starts to affect the way the blood vessels are. It brings in a handful of immune cells that are immunosuppressive, so T cells don't come and attack it. It starts to modify the energy metabolites around it. So even from an early, uh, very, very small uh, metastatic tumor, those tumors are already evolving to grow into their niche. And this is the challenge with cancer, right? We, we, um, you know, we, we often diagnose cancer at a very late stage and uh, at advanced stages, which is already metastasized. So the barrier for really targeting those cancers is, is high. And so we have to really try and find these effective therapies that hit multiple different aspects of cancer growth metastasis spread, because it's not just about metastasis. Once a tumor finds a site, it grows and, and brings another nutrient. So our, the, our approach is not just geared towards metastasis, it's really geared towards finding those key elements that make cancers grow kind of all through the body. And the, the really key, you know, Achilles heels, as they say, uh, of the process, and, and then figuring out how to combine them effectively. I know this probably be a really horrible experiment, but has anyone infected mice with cancer and then bred them and see if they go through to the germline and are inherited and expressed? Yeah, in the generally, I'm not. I don't know of those experiments. Um, you know, I don't. We don't do them. Certainly, I, I. I think cancer basically is pretty localized to the to the one generation. Yeah. Well, thank obviously, God, you're you obviously we're aware of mutations. Yeah, obviously, Rich, we know of 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 certain um, uh, mutations. That, that we have as humans that, that, that render us more susceptible to getting certain types of cancers. And those, obviously, as you know, are inherited. Um, you know, and there's examples of that, for example, for breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Um, and so, uh, you know, and those are genes that predispose to getting higher rates of cancer. And so that's an inheritable, uh, inheritable form of cancers, actually, that predisposes people. And, and there's been a, a big push in the field to try and not only diagnose patients who have those uh, early, but then make therapies against those specific targets, and and the field is yeah. making some progress there. But again, it's a there's there's a lot of work to be done because a, a lot of patients still don't have effective therapeutics. So that's really our mission is to push this progress forward, and and because uh, a lot of patients are still in need, and despite the the big advances we made in technology, we have a ton a lot of work to do as a community. So um, you know, know we're. Know. The challenges remain. Well, uh, yeah, I guess one more question referring back. The reason why I asked you if a single cell could cause uh, cancer, let's say in a mouse model, is that, you know, I've heard around uh, from many scientists, oh, cancer can start from a single cell. But do you think it does? Or do you think it really takes a whole collection of, let's say, several thousand cells in a given area in order for it to start? 
because why would it take so many in a mouse to start, you know, let's say a non-aggressive form of cancer? Why wouldn't one work? You know, the way I, you know, the way that, um, you know, I look at cancer is, is really, it's, again, it's an interplay between, um, you know, uh, what, what could be a really small number of cancer cells and the body's ability to defend itself against those. And that's happening all the time. There might be, unbeknownst to us, very small number of cells that aren't tumors, but are starting to get the characteristics of what a cancer cell would look like. And maybe early on, before those cells have had a chance to become too aggressive, the body can actually mount an attack against those and eliminate them from the body. That happens all the time. And that's happening in all of our bodies, right, to some extent. At some point, there's a, at some, uh, point, there's a tipping point, really, where the body then loses the ability through, through the tumor itself modifying and growing very aggressively to, to, to not be able to sustain the type of attack it needs to on the cancer. And that's when we, you know, start uh, having to need, uh, need to deliver uh, therapeutics. And so I, that, that way I think about it is the balance between you know, the, the attack of the tumor. And then for immunology, we think about it as, you know, immune activation versus immune suppression and the interplay between that and the tumor. So I like to think about it like that, because that seems to me like what the data suggests is the case. And I don't like to think about so much maybe quantitatively how many cells does it take, because, it, you know, it's, a, it's dynamic. And, and, uh, uh, and, and, and what that suggests is that there's multiple things that have to happen for a cancer cell to become uh, a very large tumor. It doesn't just grow quickly overnight and grow. It's, there's, there's some, uh, you know, evolution of the tumor, and then there's some effects very likely that are being mediated into the body itself that, that allow that tumor to grow without the body being able to attack it. And, and that's where I think we're making a lot of progress in our understanding of the biology and from our perspective, I think that's really this, this revolution that we're in now with immunotherapies and other therapies that affect the tumor microenvironment to, to really understand that, because uh, I think that's where you're going to get the best benefit for patients, understanding that and then targeting that. So you're facilitating the body in a way that the body has already learned to fight early and small, potentially cancer cells and tumors. You're just boosting the body's ability to do that and, un uh, and unraveling or eliminating the veil that the cancer puts on itself by evolving all the time. That, that's the way we look at it. And, and that seems to be a becoming a prevailing kind of perspective on, 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 the, on how cancer behaves. Well, maybe by studying a particular kind of cancer that acts in a, you know, a more predictable way that you can learn its playbook and the order of what it does and how it does it and how it becomes, you know, it goes from stage one through four, let's say, maybe that would shed light on, you know, how to counteract it at different stages. If you learned again, like I said, a certain cancer, a predictable one's playbook. That's right. And, and you know, and as a community, there's certain cancers we've done that, for example, colorectal cancer, uh, you know, because of the advent of colonoscopy, we're now, it's, it, in, it, and to some extent, it's a preventable cancer. We can see, you know, uh, early, early, you know, polyps growing in the colon, uh, and, you know, those can be removed and analyzed. And, and that, that, that work over time and the science behind that, uh, has revealed that, you know, that cancer is a kind of, in, in, for that example, but it probably holds for other examples, it's kind of a multi-stage process. And, it starts one way and it evolves and, 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 you know, at least for that cancer, because of colonoscopy, 
you know, it's, you can prevent it by removing early stage polyps that might actually have turned into cancer later stage. And that's actually taught us a lot about the kinds of mutations that happen in cancer early and then what, how cancer grows beyond the colon and spreads to the liver. That, that's all, that's all helped the field of, of oncology and then at the same time provided a valuable uh, note to prevent the onset of late stage cancer. But unfortunately, we don't have that for most cancer types. Uh, uh, because they're not readily accessible. We can't always monitor like we can in the colon with colonoscopies. Uh, you know, there's obviously mammograms and other preventative measures which are very valuable, but for a lot of cancers, we can't monitor globally the body on a daily basis. So we have to kind of, we have to come with a mission to really treat aggressive stage four cancer, which is what we often see um, in the field. Uh, and, and those patients really need therapies because uh, they're very sick. And so we have to kind of look at it from that angle, but at the same time learn from earlier stage cancers that, we, that we've that we had a growing body of knowledge about from the oncology field on, on how they spread and grow and, and the science behind it. But again, like let's say for colorectal cancer, is there a well-trodden path that that particular cancer tends to take with defined steps that have been observed, defined changes in it? Yes, in many cases, uh, that's been pretty well studied, and that's one of the better models we have. And a lot of that, again, is from the ability to access, you know, polyps and early tumors by colonoscopy and, and resection. Uh, and 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 there's a pretty uh, um, a consistent pattern of, you know, a, a subset of cells overgrowing, becoming what's a polyp, and then what might be look more like an adenoma, and then you know, these polyps getting larger and larger, and then at some point, potentially due to mutations in their DNA or other events, becoming really malignant cancers, which then by definition spread beyond the the colon, and and and, uh, and usually, not always, but usually will then spread to the liver and grow in the liver, and then be after that grow to other parts of the body, and even just the presence of multiple tumors in the liver is a sign that the tumor is more aggressive and doesn't respond and, you know, might not respond so well to therapy as an earlier stage um, uh, tumor does. So, you know, that that process is, is characterized. Obviously, we don't know all the molecular steps. You know, that's our, uh, the second program at Argenix uh, that's in clinical trials right now is geared towards gastrointestinal cancer. And it's really based on that uh, the biology of how ca- uh, you know colorectal cancer spreads that we've gotten some insights into potential ways of of targeting that with our second program that's uh, in clinical development RGX202 uh based on the biology of of colorectal cancer progression that that we've uh, uncovered using our uh, scientific approach okay well very good what um so you said you're in clinical trials um what is the near term future and then, you know, maybe in the next year or two, and then the next five plus years, what does it look like for Argenix? What do you think will be coming? Sure. So um, so we have a lead uh, uh, compound. It's called RGX-104. We completed what's known as a phase 1A dose escalation. That's essentially a, mostly a safety study, but we also uh, were able to monitor the immune activation and anti-tumor activity there. We're starting um, uh, in the summertime a phase 1B-2, so that's mid-clinical development for that program, geared mostly towards lung cancer. Our second program, RGX-202, as I mentioned, is in a phase 1A for gastrointestinal cancers. Again, that's the first stage of clinical trials. It's uh, 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 a small molecule. Again, these 
RGX104 and RGX202 are what's known as small molecules, meaning they're delivered orally, uh, uh, they're not uh, injectables. And then we have a third program that has not entered clinical development yet um, that will enter clinical development roughly in about 18 months from now. So that's what we call preclinical. And then we have our target discovery approach that identified the targets of these three programs that we're now applying to find even further uh, novel targets. So we're really built the company here in New York to be not just a developer of, of specific programs, but really uh, an all-encompassing company that has a plat- target discovery platform to continue to do the science. And so the next year for us is, is going to be an exciting one as we take uh, RGX-104, our lead program, into this phase 1B2 studies in lung cancer. Those are going to be pretty large um, uh, large uh, uh, clinical trials across the United States and our second program as well through the clinic. So we're going to be getting um, interim data into 2020 for that, for both of those programs in those select tumor types and then bringing our third program forward. Uh, at the same time, we um, at the end of last year closed our a Series C financing of $40 million. We've raised more than $80 million to date. And so the company is well financed um, through 2020. So we'll be looking again to um, to kind of push all the programs forward uh, and and really build out the company as a as really an independent uh, novel uh, cancer therapeutics company to really make these therapies uh, uh, for high unmet need uh, tumor types for patients that don't have effective therapies. That's great. Um, I guess last question in general: How effective do you think it'll be? Uh, I mean, your efforts and other companies, do you think that we'll, I don't know, be able to at least extend the life significantly of people with uh, various cancers in the next few years, or is it still a long road ahead? Yeah, that's our goal. I mean, our mission is really to, you know, extend the life of patients with cancer and ultimately have patients that have advanced cancer be cured of their cancer. And as a community, we're starting to see those types of responses with immunotherapies that are already approved. The, the checkpoint inhibitors is the example I gave, and there's several of those approved um, uh, both in the United States and Europe and globally that have uh, uh, provided long-term, more than 10-year clinical benefit from early studies already in advanced cancer patients. And uh, for all intents and purposes, some of those patients are cured of their advanced cancer, and that's really the first time that's happened. And that's really emerged over the last, you know, five to 10 years. We've been building on that immunotherapy progress and so, um, again, that's a small percentage of patients get that benefit. A lot of patients don't get benefit from those therapies, and we're, we're trying to figure out why as a cancer community and, 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 and overcome that. But we're really in a phase, I believe, of a lot of growth in the knowledge, science, and technology that will uh, have a larger and larger number of patients getting the types of benefit that we all really dream of, which is really long-term cures and and uh, not just, you know, a few weeks of clinical benefit from therapies. Because I think that's what patients are, you know, patients are in need of that. So as a, as a community working on this problem, we have to really focus on the, on the big need. And so I, be, I believe that that's coming. Obviously, it takes a very long time to develop a therapeutic. Uh, you have to start with the basic science of many years. But a lot of that science has been going on over the last decade, particularly in immunotherapy. And we're starting to, uh, as a community, again, reap the reap the benefits of that, I think, with the, with the approval of uh, checkpoint immunotherapies and then these kind of second-generation immunotherapies like the ones Argenix is developing. Well, very good. Well, Masood, what's the best way for people to contact Argenix, ask questions, 
messages, collaboration, et cetera? Yeah, so uh, we have a, a, a website. It's at www.argenix.com, R-G-E-N-I-X, and there's a, there's a portal there that they can uh, send uh, comments to um, and, uh, and any inquiries. Okay, well, very good. Well, I appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Rich. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Thank you.